Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of history hack alina's very very excited today aren't you alina when am i never excited I'm always okay excited. why are you more excitable than usual usually she's like a labrador puppy today she's like a labrador puppy on speed why because i'm very excited ladies and gentlemen so this lovely lady is one of my favorite historians and i don't say this often but not only is she a historian she's an award-winning author and a broadcaster the fabulous Claire Mully. She has written some fantastic books like The Woman, Women, sorry, sorry, The Woman, oh my God, I can't speak today, Who Saved the Children and The Spy Who Loved, which actually led her to being decorated with the Polish Benemerito Honorary Distinction, which is really awesome. You may also recognise her from various historical documentaries. So welcome, Claire. Oh, thank you very much. Lovely to be here. Well, I'm actually obviously at home, but... Yeah, we're not breaking any laws. <laughs> uh, how is lockdown? Whereabouts are you? Uh, I'm in Essex, Essex girl, and it's all right. Yeah, I'm lucky I've got a garden. I've got lots and lots of books, so trying to make a few inroads into that. And uh, obviously I'm pretending that I'm a female special agent exhibiting a kind of cool and lonely courage on my own here. Yeah, that's the only way to do it. Otherwise, you'll go crazy. Otherwise, we just become crazy cat slash dog lady. Let's start with one of my favourites, which is Christina Skarbek. So can you tell us a little bit about her? And wasn't she Churchill's favourite spy? Well, she may have been at one point in the war, yes. So um, Christina Skarbek, or Christine Granville, as she's perhaps better known in the UK, but not in Poland, uh, was the first woman to serve Britain as a special agent in the Second World War. And uh, not only that, she was actually the longest serving agent, female or male, for Britain during that conflict, and one of the most effective as well. So, uh, yes, I've written an old book on her. The book's called The Spy Who Loved because Christine was a very passionate woman. She loved, or she loved men. She had two husbands and many lovers, um, and she loved adrenaline and action, um, but above all, she loved freedom and independence, um, both for her country, Poland, and for herself personally. So um, she is absolutely inspirational woman. She was born a Polish countess, um, but she didn't want to be dancing polonaises. She wanted to get into the into the get everything she could from life. And perhaps it's ironic that war that um, normally is or we presume sidelines women actually it was war that gave her the opportunity to take centre stage when she became the first woman to serve Britain as a special agent 
Um, and she served in three different theatres of the war. Um, she was incredibly effective and she was very highly honoured for her achievements. She got the, the um, George Medal, the OBE, and the French gave her the Croix de Guerre with one star as well. Um, and yes, in her, one of her early actions at the start of the war, she was serving in Poland and she was smuggling information across borders. At times she was skiing over the high Tatra mountains in apparently temperatures of minus 20 degrees. Someone told me that's enough to freeze the birds on the branches of the trees, which sounds a bit too romantic for what she was going through. She was skiing past dead bodies and so on, wow. frozen mountains. Yeah, and she would stop and put pine crosses on them. She's a lovely woman. Anyhow, and she, she would bring back information. And one of the things she brought back, she um, smuggled inside her leather gloves across a couple of borders. And it was film footage taken by the Polish resistance. And what it showed was the massing of troops and tanks on what was then the German side of the German-Soviet border and the creation of a series of fuel and ammunition dumps clearly to support a land-based invasionary army. And this was the first film footage of German preparations for Operation Barbarossa, the Nazi German invasion of their erstwhile enemy, uh, their erstwhile ally, sorry, the Soviet Union. Um, and she got that to the British air attaché in Sofia, he got it uh, sent directly on to Churchill and Churchill was astounded. I mean, he obviously checked the information on this through his ultra sources. That's Fletchley Park and so on. And it all stacked up. So he did get in touch with Stalin uh, on the basis of this um, to warn him of what was imminent. Stalin sadly didn't believe him. Anyhow, and Churchill's daughter, Sarah Oliver, who was a big fan of Christine, she was an, an actress and actually wanted to play her in a biopic of Christine in the 1950s. Um, but she later said that she wanted to play that role because her father, Winston Churchill, had told her that at that point, uh, Christine was his favourite spy. That's brilliant. Um, what about women in general in the SOE? Can you give us a, an overall picture of what it was like for them and why they were needed? Yes, of course. Um, well, Christine actually, uh, she signed up not with SOE because it hadn't even been created. She was so quick off the mark. She was in the field before the end of 1939 working for something called Section D. Um, that D was for destruction. It was about sabotage in those days. Um, but that later got merged with two other organisations that became SOE um, in sort of the summer of 1940. And uh, SOE is a special operations executive. It was a British organisation um, which was designed to support the domestic, domestic resistance in occupied nations or resisting nations through the coordination of sabotage and preparations for the Allied Liberationary Forces when they would eventually come in. And they supplied... Uh, communications, which was absolutely vital. So wireless sets, uh, they supplied um, training uh, and armaments, of course, and many other supplies. So women were sent down in this role. Men and women actually um, often did the same roles, but women were recruited specifically for two roles to work in these very small cellular networks. They're actually based originally on the IRA idea of having cells so that if one is broken, they won't know the names of people in other cells. So it's a security sort of structure. And each of these cells would have three main roles. There'd be a circuit leader, which was always a man. It was, uh, men were recruited for that role. Um, uh, and then there was a courier and a wireless transmitter operator. And the women were sent in for the last two roles. But actually, once they were in the field, people were getting arrested or executed or just shot and a number of the women of course stood up for whatever was required and several of them like Pearl Witherington for example led armies male armies into battle um, and they undertook all the coordinating roles they did all the same work that the men did as well 
Um, so they served across a number of different countries, um, but most were sent into France. 39 women were sent into France and they were actually given a life expectancy. They were told before they went out because all the women, of course, are volunteers, not conscripts. So they were warned um, and given the option to pull out because they believed that they had about a six weeks life expectancy, especially for wireless transmitters, because the Germans could um, they had uh, signal detection vans and they could pin them onto that wireless signal and get closer and closer and so eventually capture the agent um so they could expect to be caught interrogated um probably quite brutally and probably shot within six weeks um despite knowing that christine volunteered for three different theaters of the war to serve and of those 39 women who volunteered for france alone um 13 of them never returned. So, yeah, it was wow. incredibly terrifying. Um, these these I, women are inspirational. They really uh, yeah, are. absolutely inspirational. And that's one of the things that annoys me because, I mean, even recently in uh, the books I've seen since my book came out and some films and so on, we still, the popular imagination still tends to see female special agents or women in the resistance more generally in very romantic terms. They tend to be sort of they're doing it because their brother's been shot they didn't really want to um perhaps they've been perhaps some of them have got some spirit but they're often celebrated as much for their beauty and certainly for their courage which we, we mustn't underestimate rather than for their achievements and i think one of the fabulous things about christina's story and many of these women is actually how much they achieved and that story still hasn't really been fully told i agree could you tell us what their recruitment was actually like yes so um no no women would go in and apply for this work so it tended to be recruitment was done through um the fannies and the wafs you know the, the first aid nursing yeomanry or whatever these different groups the ats so people would apply for that and then it was discovered they had very good language skills for example perhaps they'd lived in france before the war from an anglo-french family or you know one of the other things to say is that, of course, it's not just French. They had many women from many different nations. And that's one of the fantastic things about these women who served. They were such a diverse group. And people often say to me, were the recruiters looking for specific things? Well, I, I think they were. They were Obviously, they were looking for knowledge of the country into which they would be sent back to serve. Um, they were looking for language skills, of course. They were looking for courage and physical fitness, although um, these women were all different age ranges. I mean, they were grandmothers. There was one woman who had a prosthetic leg, Virginia Hall from America. Um, but they were, essentially, it was the diversity that gave them uh, such an important role. The one thing that women had, what they were recruited for, it wasn't the superpower that's so often ascribed to them of being very glamorous and sexy and seducing people, not that at all. What they had was the superpower of being generally overlooked because they're women. And so, especially after in France, um, in 1942, this policy came through called the STO, the Service Travail d'Obligataire. So that was when they recruited any able-bodied Frenchmen who weren't already prisoners of war, dead or, you know, fighting overseas. They recruited them for the German war effort to go and, you know, be forced labourers in the factories producing arms and so on. And so lots of the young men then disappeared up into the hills to become resistance fighters. And any able-bodied man moving around the country, as resistance fighters had to do, to collect guns and ammunition, take information, whatever it was, 
um, was immediately suspect. But women were moving around France all the time, trying to keep businesses going, trying to support families and so on. And women tended to be overlooked. At first, the Germans thought that, you know, a woman with a pram or an old lady with heavy bags that was nothing to think about. They wouldn't look at them. Um, but of course, this was a perfect disguise for women to just go around as if they were doing everyday women's live stuff. And that's how, uh, that's what made them so useful. They were undetected. Tell us about the training. Um, what could they expect to go through? Um, and then what kind of missions would they be sent on? Well, okay, so training there i mean there was lots of different stages to this because of the number that they tried to recruit of course only a very few were selected eventually um so they'd start uh, they'd send them up to scotland i don't know if people saw that tv show last year um secret agent training or special agent training or something it was called um so they had to do sort of outward bounds and fitness and all that orienteering that kind of stuff um and then there was you know army courses and then there was training in guns and explosives, uh, sabotage courses and so on. Um, then there was um, defensive courses as well. Um, Christine, the course that she excelled in was called the Silent Killing Course, which was coordinated by two former Shanghai police cops who had sort of learnt these skills down at the docks. So it's fighting just with a rope, a knife or actually your bare hands. So a karate chop to a specific point can kill and so on. And this is the course that Christine excelled in. And actually, she said that her knife was her favourite weapon, although I think that her best weapon. There's no evidence that she actually killed anyone during the war, which is quite extraordinary anyhow. I think her best weapon was her brain because she's such a quick thinker, talks away in and out of these amazing situations. Um, so they did that. They're also trained in Morse, wireless and coding, all that sort of thing. Christine didn't like because um, it's a bit desk bound, really. She's more of a horse riding, getting out there kind of woman. Um, and then they were trained in lots of things like recognising the enemy, you know, Nazi uniforms, what life was like in an occupied country. Because the last thing you want to do is go into a French cafe on your first day and order coffee with milk if there's no milk to be had in the country for two months clearly that's going to set alarm bells ringing so it's all of that sort of contextual stuff as well um yeah they were trained in parachuting um they went up to ringway now manchester airport and learned to jump from well first a fuselage or a balloon that was late and then eventually to do actual parachute drops and in fact um, men only had to do, I think men had to do two parachute drops before they were signed off and given their wings, but women had to do three. And that there doesn't seem to be any logical reason for this. I have to wonder if it's to um, stop women being given their wings so that the story didn't get out that women were being sent in to work in these situations. So that's a, that's a sort of rough idea of some of the training they received, but they were very highly skilled. This isn't just a few women romantically being sent out. These are women who were very well prepared for their specific missions. Um, and the missions they were sent for, as I said, the women were often sent to be couriers. So moving information between different resistance circuits uh, and wireless transmitters. So that, again, is making contact with London, perhaps coordinating the supply um, parachute drops of containers packed full of armaments, ammunition um, and other supplies, small motorbikes that could be folded up and put in them, uh, boots, whatever they needed. Um, they were also... Um, well, they, they, they had all sorts of roles. We had women who were running escape lines. We had women who were sabotage experts, some of whom trained the men in the use of ammunition and explosives, the detonation, um, in felling telegraph pylons, that sort of thing. Um, women took all the same roles as the men and often more. 
can I just say that mm. just, wow like I'm so sorry. Once you set me off, I can just keep going. <laughs> no, but it's, it, it's amazing. These women just sound so. I just, I, I want to switch careers now. This sounds really. Alex, sorry, I'm resigning from Again. this. Again, oh, but do you know what? She changes her speciality every time we interview a guest. But you know what? So much excitement um, was raised when we put it out there on Twitter that you were coming on, and we've got loads more oh. questions for you. So please waffle away because we love it. <laughs> We are. Yeah, I'm really, I'm really enjoying this. But do you know what? Enough of me talking. Enough of Alex talking. Let's go to a question from Luke. Oh, I was going to get one in there, but never mind. Okay. No, go for it. Go for it. What, what, what do you have? What do you want to say? Go for it. Nina said that you know I want, I want to change jobs. I want to be that. Well, obviously, I've often lain in my nice safe, saying my nice saint, my nice safe. Maybe not saying. I don't know. My nice yeah. safe. <laughs> saying um you know if I was a special agent what, what where would I go what would I do I'd be so brave but um when I was doing my research I went out to um obviously I went out to France I went out and spent a lot of time in Poland I went out with a friend of mine who kindly translated for me magic and um we started off at her hometown. I was kind of doing it chronologically and I spent a bit too long there. Macho was going, come on, come on. We've got to get to Warsaw before it's late. And eventually we, we headed out. It was the evening and we arrived at Warsaw. Now I was very lucky because I'd managed to get in touch with the son of one of Christina's colleagues in arms and lovers, in fact, a wonderful man called Vladimir Ledochowski and his son, Jan Ledochowski. It's quite an easy name to trace, not that many of them. So I managed to get in touch with him and he's, he was incredibly helpful and shared his, his knowledge with me. And then he said, well, if you're going to Poland to do some research, why don't you stay in my flat? Um, so, you know, it's not often that a Polish count invites you to stay in their beautiful flat on Warsaw Old Town Square. So, of course, I said, yeah, that'd oh, be wow. very much. So, gave me the keys, off I went. And uh, Machet was staying at his aunt's around the corner. And so I went in, and the next morning I woke up, and we were off to the National Institute of Remembrance, a big archive in Poland, to see what we could find. And I came downstairs, opened the door of the flat onto the square, and there was a Wehrmacht unit in the street. And I just thought, this is, this is really, this is not right. So I shut the door, obviously. And I thought, that's completely ridiculous. So I opened it up again. And unfortunately, they were still there. And now they were pretty angry as well. And this quite a hefty chap got off a motorbike and started running towards me. And he had like a handheld machine gun with a perforated barrel at the top. And he started jabbing it towards my neck. And he was shouting at me, at which point I realized he wasn't talking German. He was talking Polish. But I just, the whole thing was terrifying. I don't know if you've ever had a gun pointed right at you. But it is absolutely terrifying. I was nearly on the ground in tears, just about holding it together. When Maciek came running around the corner, he said, I- I'm so sorry, I didn't see. Because well, I've been faffing around so much the day before, it was very dark when we'd arrived. And he hadn't seen, there was a poster on the side of the buildings, which said, please don't come out of these flats between eight and 10 in the morning, because we're filming for a World War II TV series. <laughs> and, oh my God. <laughs> I, out, I ruined the middle of this take. And the man on the motorbike had obviously done really well. And he was quite annoyed to have me coming out in my jeans in the middle of it. <laughs> <laughs> he was just having a go at me but what it showed me is that sometimes you can learn a lot in an archive but you can't learn what it's like to actually go to occupy poland and in a sense i suppose i thought you know either i've time traveled or i've lost my marbles but whatever it is it's not right but my brain hadn't quite clocked into gear and all i had was i'm really really scared and i suddenly you know christine did go out she, she her mother was jewish so she was considered jewish by the germans they would have interrogated her and then shot her without any question she knew that she was a british special agent yet she went into occupied poland four times on separate missions and then served in different theaters and she was arrested 
more than once and not only talked her way out of trouble and saved her own life but saved the lives of many of the, her male colleagues that she walked alongside so she had this incredible courage and sang froid and you know and I suddenly realized that no I'm not, I'm not actually qualified for this job I don't have that and her skills really were exceptional yeah this is the one so, where this is the moment you realize you'd make a rubbish spy yeah so you do that yeah. <laughs> let's get to luke's question yeah so luke luke asks did female soe agents face much sexism from their male colleagues i've seen some evidence of this post-war from other women working in intelligence but also lots of forward thinking and acceptance yeah um so well of course it's, it varied and what was considered sexist then is different to what's considered sexist today. You know, she lived in this era of very casual sexism that she was very used to and wouldn't have, you know, batted an eyelid at. To, and she was very capable of taking care of herself. But actually, her colleagues inevitably quickly realised what an asset she was and valued her for her skills. I think when you're in the field facing the enemy and that, you know, yes, you, you might want to um, have a number of affairs because you think your days are numbered. But essentially, what you want from your colleague is a fantastic ability to do your work undercover and get the results that are needed. That's what you're judged by. And Christine was valued very much for her skills above all by her colleagues. But after the war, things were very different. And even the former head of SOE, Colin Gubbins, um, a, a general who had contributed very much um, to the war effort, of course, afterwards, Christine says, you know, uh, she had been turned down for various work that she'd wanted and she'd petitioned him for some help as a referee and she'd gone to meet him and afterwards she complained that he just wanted to get her into bed so in, immediately those double standards came back in and at the end of the war unfortunately um britain didn't treat christina very well i have to say she's not she, she's been honored by britain but she hasn't been honored to this day by poland for various interesting reasons um, so she was treated quite poorly by both her, her native country and her adopted country, I have to say. And some of that, although not all of that, was sexism. So the men that she'd served alongside, some of whose lives she had saved, actually, uh, were redeployed, like um, Andre Kowarski uh, was given a role in the uh, British-occupied area of Germany, the British zone after the war. Um, Christine applied for these roles and was just offered secretarial work or clerical roles, which of course she turned down. She didn't have those skills and she didn't have any interest in that, but she was hugely qualified for other work. Um, and they never considered giving her any of that. So there were massive double standards. And if you read the British files, it really is shameful. You know, these, some of them are young men who weren't old enough to serve in the war that are now passing judgment on her. And they've written in pencil on it things like, I don't believe she did this. Um, even though it's all it's all in there you know um, and she's an irritating woman very difficult to place won't take secretarial work and um, they call her a girl you know it's absolutely it made me absolutely irate so yes she did have to fight off a lot of sexism as well as everything else millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Oh, sticking with her, it's outrageous. Um, more questions. So Matt would like to know, during Christina's return to Poland, how active was she with the Musketeers and Kazimierz Lesky, or was her role as a courier too vital to get involved? Um, yeah, well, she did get involved, yes. So, uh, in fact, on her first trip into occupied Poland, um, early on in 1940, um, she uh, she did get in touch with Kazimierz Leski, who was the head of this independent resistance group called the Musketeers. Um, and the Musketeers are very controversial. I'm sure that, was it Matt? I'm sure perhaps he knows this. Yeah. Um, but, they were not part of the official Polish resistance, um, the ZWZ. They were an independent group and they, were, they wanted to keep their autonomy. So they worked directly with Christina and she herself, I mean, she, she would have loved to have gone directly to Poland to volunteer for the official resistance. But in fact, she knew that if she'd gone there, she, she was in South, Southern Africa when the war started. She got on a ship passenger ship eventually made her way back to Europe by which time Poland had fallen there was no point in her going and you know the government was coming out to be a government in exile in, in Paris at that point so she couldn't volunteer in her home country so that's why she went to the British Secret Services and basically demanded to be taken on and they took her on despite the fact that she was Polish despite the fact she was a woman and therefore totally unqualified and because she had all these the skills and experience and contacts that they needed and so she was working for the British, not for the Poles. So this independent group worked with her and they would give her information like that film footage of the preparations for Operation Barbarossa. And the Pole, the official Polish resistance, knew that this footage had value. So they didn't want to just give it to Brits. They wanted to negotiate and so on. Whereas she was working for the Brits and would give this information straight over. So there was this tension between the different resistance bodies. And also... Um, Less than three weeks after Germany had invaded Poland, of course, the Soviet Union had attacked. And so then Poland faces a war on two fronts very early on in the war. And the musketeers would work with both sides to play both off against the other. So there is some information that they also worked with the Nazis, which, of course, was completely unacceptable um, in different circles. And so the fact that Christina had some contact with this has... Uh, sort of blackened her name in some circles. Now, Christine wouldn't have known what the policy was here. Christine wasn't a particularly strategic person. She was tactical. She wanted to do as quickly as she could, all she could to serve her country and to serve all the allies against the Nazi and Soviet advance. And so she, she was taken on by the Musketeers and worked as a courier. Um, and she did meet Vikoski and she did meet Kazimierz Lesky. Um, who actually was very struck by her. He later wrote that she was lovely, graceful, very intelligent and an absolutely charming girl. So he was very impressed by her. Um, and he went on to be, although he was connected with the Musketeers, he's a great Polish hero. Um, but Christina has somehow sort of slipped through the gaps there. She's, she's just too independent. You know, she's too masculine to be feminine. She's too feminine to be a real man. She's too, she works for the British, so she can't be completely Polish. But she's too Polish to be, you know... 
this woman is so independent. She's just herself fighting for the cause she believes in that afterwards she sort of gets downed by association and not ticking people's boxes. It's rubbish. I'm about to throw uh, women back a hundred years. Please don't judge me, Claire and everybody who's listening for my next question, Mm -hmm. because this one's coming from me. Obviously we know she was beautiful. She had many lovers, but there are rumours that I want you to tell me if they're true or not. So was she, in fact, Ian Fleming's lover? Ah, yes. Okay, no. I mean, if people have heard anything about Christina, it might be that she was Churchill's favourite spy or that she was Ian Fleming's lover. Uh, No, she was not, I don't believe. Um, This rumour was started by a previous biographer of Fleming who claimed it, um, but actually it didn't stack up and he's been found to have been faulty elsewhere and he's no longer with us. So it's impossible for us to follow up where he got that from um, or if, as I believe he invented it, but no, I don't think she was Fleming's lover, but Ian Fleming's first James Bond book, Casino Royale came out uh, not long after the year after Christina Scarbeck died. Don't know if we're going to touch on her end later. Um, And when he was, when Fleming was promoting this book in America, He gave a number of interviews to, what should we say, um, sort of men's magazines in which they asked him where he got his inspirations for his characters. And without them asking her his name by name, he said, oh, there was this amazing uh, woman called Christina Scarbeck. And he he talks about her um, spontaneously. And if you read that book and you look at the character of Vesper Lind, there are, you know, you could argue a number of similarities in her appearance, the jewellery the character wears, her behaviour, caught between action and sunbathing. It all is very much like Christina. So she is possibly the inspiration for Vesper Lind. But I think, you know, I know that Ian Fleming had at least two very close friends in common with Christina. That's Colin Gubbins and Bill Stanley Moss, who wrote Ill Met by Moonlight about the um, capture of the German general on Crete with Paddy Lee Thurmer. And, and he was a very good friend of Christine's. Actually, his eldest daughter was called Christine after her. And um, Christine was her godmother. So um, they had very... I imagine that Fleming saw the stories about Christine after her death in the British newspapers, had friends in common, found out about her story and was inspired by her. But, you know, let's not get too overexcited by, by this. You know, I mean, A... Christine is much more James Bond than Bond girl. She's not a, a secondary, she's not a footnote in someone else's story, thank you. And apart from that, she's, you know, much more than any male fantasy. She's the real deal. She's not a fictional character. She went out and did it. So, yeah, let's focus on the achievements. We, yeah, I'm undoubtedly, but you did just mention um, her end and we, I do want to know what I had. So you've already mentioned she was treated badly after the war, um, mm. but it ends quite tragically, doesn't it? Yes, well, yeah. So Christine, who had put her life on the line for over, you know, given six weeks life expectancy, actually survived for six years throughout the war, then died in London in 1952 and came to, well, she was murdered. And I did apply under the Freedom of Information Act and got the appropriate files out. Um, It was awful, actually. I was in the um, National Archives at Kew and out of this file slipped a, a brown envelope which is all battered and torn at one side and um, these crime scene photographs of her slipped out onto the floor and yet there, there are quite a few pictures of Christine they're normally a little bit blurry because she's always sort of moving she's an action person um, but these ones they're absolutely crystal clear and yet it's completely clear she's not there anymore it's just it's just a body um, so that was that was quite shocking really anyhow so um, I did find out I managed to actually 
uh, trace the nephew of the man who killed her. And, and there's all sorts of conspiracy theories around this, which I, I do look at in the book, but I'm, I'm pretty clear what happened. But um, I don't think we should give it all away on the podcast, do you? No, so, we shouldn't. We should make people yeah. go and buy your book. Um, well, there's no make, but if you're interested, yeah. it's all... No, make them. Use force. As much force as we can use when we're not allowed within two metres of each other. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, okay. So there is exclusive coverage of... Um, her death in the book um and we'll leave that for you to find uh alina you've got another question from beth haven't you we do we did put out quite a few and we've got quite a big response for for claire so this is going on to your research about christina so when you were researching christina's life what fact or an anecdote which you didn't previously know did you find the most interesting or surprising I found this really hard. I mean i didn't know much about christina i didn't know anything about her when i first started looking into her and uh, it was actually my agent suggested her because um, he knew I had an interest in Polish history. I studied Polish history as part of my first degree. And I was a feminist and I, I thought the women had been poorly represented uh, when they're written about at all. Um, so I, he suggested Christina Scarbeck to me. And I said no, because I, I felt it was a bit like a blind date and I wanted to find my own subject. You know, thank you very much. <laughs> I thought I'd better find out a bit so I could go back and, and say why I didn't want to do it. And, uh, you know, I found out this extraordinary story and like everyone, I was totally seduced by her and, you know, just this remarkable history that should be better known. So, um, so I came back and said, yeah, no, I'll do it. And just everything she did, you know, the work that she did um, when she was arrested in Poland and interrogated brutally in a cell. She was already ill. She had a hacking cough and a fever and they expected to break down her resistance very quickly. Um, and the British files said simply that she showed great presence of mind and was released. And I was like, well, you know, what's great presence of mind mean? Um, and what it, it turns out, what she did was she, she bit her own tongue and not just a little, but repeatedly until it bled copiously. And as she coughed, it looked as if she was coughing up blood which is the symptom of TB, a highly contagious disease. The Germans were rightly terrified of this disease and they threw her out. I mean, later, that ruse of biting your tongue entered into the SOE Special Operations Executive Handbook, training handbook, um, and possibly that came from her. So, you know, all of these stories, there's so many of them, it's very hard to pin this one. I think maybe the most surprising thing is, you know, here is this woman, she grew up riding horses and shooting guns, she was expelled from her school. She, she was highly trained. She, she excelled in the silent killing course. She could parachute. She could seduce anyone. She could be quite cruel. She could be petulant. But she could be incredibly courageous and put her own life on the line many times to save the lives of others. She got all these honours. But um, I did find that she, she never learned to swim. <laughs> That's always quite easy. There's something I can do she can't. So maybe that. Yeah, because she does, undoubtedly, she just sounds like a complete legend. Um, is I, I had a moment like that with George V where I tried so hard to get access to all the papers that when I first sat down with his diary, I thought, I don't know anything about him. What if he's a dick? I'm stuck with him for like three years. But he's not a dick, happily. But um, Manitou Stoltus would like to know, is there a reason why the author of the book decided to use her, not to use her real polish name uh, people know her english name but have no clue who she really was and i know that you saw this one and you wanted to answer this one didn't you yeah, i'm very happy to answer this um i, I would uh, you know her real polish name well you know she had many real names and um 
Uh, people, some people do know her English name in Poland, but more people know her Polish name. Um, but I have hoped that my book has put her on the map and people do have a bit of a clue now who she really was. And I've also been, I've, I've led, it's now a six-year campaign to get a blue plaque for her, which will lead with her Polish name and have her British name underneath it, in fact, um, on the London, her last known London residence. And English Heritage have just approved that. So now with coronavirus, we don't know when it's going to happen. But um, we've done an awful lot of work to get her name, her names, better known. But why I, in my English language book and in the Polish translation, I think they've gone with a Polish name. But in the English language book, I've, I've used her name. I mean, she, Christine had many names. In, she was born in 1908, although she told people it was 1915, you know. Um, but she was born Maria Christina Janina Skarbek. She never really used the Maria bit for a start. In 1930, she married her first husband and became Christina Getlich. Forgive me for the mispronunciations here. In 1938, she married her second husband until 1946. So she became Christina Gzicki. Um, and then during the war, of course, she had many code names. She was X. Uh, they, the musketeers we were talking about, they called her Muka, or Little Fly. Uh, she was known as Willing, which somebody wrote in the files um, might be libelous. I think that might comment on how she got some of her information. Um, she, and one of her main names was Pauline Armand, and you see that written at the bottom of letters and so on. Um, but the name in 1941 that she chose for herself when she fled from um, Budapest because her cover had been broken and she had to get out was Christine Granville, which uh, she chose because, well, it's quite aristocratic sounding, but because it's a Channel Islands name, Granville, and that explained why she spoke perfect French uh, and good English, but with a French accent, and yet could still have a British passport. So she chose the name Christine Granville. And why I stuck with that name is after the war, she wrote a letter to her friend saying, I want to keep the name Granville that I have made for myself and of which I am so proud. So if she decided that that's the name she wanted to be known by, I thought I should respect her wishes on it. So why is Christina not better remembered? I mean, I know a lot of the women are not, but yeah. why? Well, there's a, a couple of things to this. I mean, everything's complicated, isn't it? I mean, firstly, after she died, um, as I said, uh, Winston Churchill's daughter wanted to star in a biopic of Christine. This would have been after... Um, the first film, Odette, and around the time of Carve Her Name with Pride about um, Violet's Arbo, and the first one about Odette Sanson, of course, Odette Hallows. Um, and there was definitely public interest in more of these films. And they, uh, Bill Stanley Moss actually wrote the screenplay. And of course, um, Ill Met by Moonlight became a very famous uh, film. And this would have been very much of that genre. He wrote that film as well. He wrote the screenplay. And I got in touch with his daughters, um, who are now friends of mine, which is lovely. Um, and they, they gave me, they shared all the notes he'd made for it, although the, uh, the actual script itself has disappeared, sadly. But while he was writing it, I don't think it was ever finished because he got in touch with um, the other men who had served alongside Christine. And he himself had known her in Cairo, but he spoke to Andre Kaversky and so on. And Andre was really Christina's soulmate, um, the love of her life, and also the colleague during the war who, with whom she worked most frequently, probably. Um, and he, after her death, had uh, convened this group of men who had known Christine best. Bill Stanley Moss was one of them, Francis Kermertz and others. Um, he called it the panel to preserve the reputation of Countess Christina Scarbeck. And I think he felt that you couldn't really tell Christine's story without showing what a hot-blooded woman she was. And, you know, her full personality, including her... Um, 
her many affairs. That was just part of who she was and part of her life and part of her, her life during the war. And he felt that the world wasn't ready for this hot-blooded story in 1952 and it would be bad for her reputation. Um, and so they agreed not to tell the stories that they knew. And there just wasn't enough information on the parts of the war that Bill Stanley and Moss hadn't been with, you know, like in France and so on. And so the project was shelved. Um, and sadly, you know, the net result of that was that she sort of, at the time, she could have become so famous, but she's really been forgotten ever since because those papers were kept quiet. Um, later, Andrew did, in fact, tell the story to another writer who wrote the first biography of Christine called Madeleine Masson. Um, but it was really very much the story that Andrew wanted told. It was his filter on Christine's life. Um, and I, during my research, I was lucky to meet um, Maria Pinkowska, Andrew's niece. Um, they didn't have children. And his niece inherited his papers and so on. And she said, you know, today I just feel like she should be better known. And it was very nice to kind of have her family blessing that the story should now be told in full. Um, and I was thinking about the, those men trying to protect her reputation. I mean, she she had saved the lives of quite a few of them. Um, and actually, she slept with quite a few of them, too. And I, I, several of them were married. Perhaps they were trying to protect more more reputation than one. But I think Andrew was doing it from sort of loyalty and respect for her. I think he felt that he had failed to save her life in 1952. So at least he could save her reputation afterwards. But the net result anyhow is that she hasn't had her story told. But the other thing is, you know, why aren't more of these women's stories told? I think they are beginning to be told more now, which is great. So there's been um, some very good biographies. We've got Sonia Pennell's biography of Virginia Hall, um, uh, Susan Ottaway's written about Violet Zabo. Violet's daughter Tanya has done a biography of her. Um, uh, Srabani Basu has written about Nora and Yakan and so on. So some of these stories are beginning to be told um, and in better ways because until this sort of wave of interest, again, they were kind of relegated to backstories and often kind of romanticised. So I'm very glad to, to be part, you know, I think my book on Christina Scarbeck, The Spy Who Loves, really tells the story, tells the achievements. Um, so, yeah, I hope people will be interested in that. Absolutely. And it like your passion just shines through as well about uh, wanting to tell these women's stories. Um, yeah. Let's just end with uh, a question um, from Women of London. She'd like to know uh, if you could interview either Hannah Wright or Melita von Stauffenberg, who would you oh. choose and what would you ask them? Okay, so these are the two women at the heart of my most recent book, which is called The Women Who Flew for Hitler. And they were the only two female pilots to serve the Third Reich as test pilots. Um, they're absolutely brilliant pilots. They were very courageous and they were deep patriots, although I think their understanding of patriotism was very different from one another's. Um, but they did serve this criminal regime. Um, Hannah was, she was an amazing pilot. I mean, if they hadn't been amazing, the men wouldn't have met them near their amazing equipment, obviously. Um, but Hannah was the first woman to fly a helicopter, first person in the world to fly a helicopter inside a building, mad as that was. She ended up flying the rocket plane and the V1, that's the doodlebug. It's basically a prototype cruise missile she piloted. Um, but she's probably most famous <clears throat> for her work at the end of the war where she flew into Berlin when it was surrounded by the Red Army and her plane was under fire. And she got to the bunker and she begged Hitler to let her fly him to freedom, which he refused. But that's where some of these stories that Hitler got out of the bunker, which he did not. Anna um, is probably most famous for being the, you know, flying into Berlin when the Red Army was surrounding it and her plane was under fire, getting to the bunker and begging Hitler 
to let her fly him to safety, uh, which he refused. Of course, he never did leave that bunker, not alive. Um, but she did manage to fly herself out with last orders. Um, Melita is Hannah's absolute nemesis. Um, she was a brilliant pilot as well. She was also an aeronautical engineer and actually helped to develop the dive sites and the dive brakes for the Stuka dive bombers. So she played an important role for the Third Reich, but she wasn't really, well, she wasn't a Nazi. She was a patriot, but <clears throat> her, her, her father had been born Jewish and she was considered or Michelin in the horrendous terminology of that criminal regime. Um, and so she actually applied, for, she, she made herself personally invaluable by becoming such an expert on developing and testing the Stuka dive bombers that she was irreplaceable. So that saved her life. But when she was offered equal to Aryan status, she actually refused it unless it was given to all her family. So in effect, she's kind of working under duress to try and save her family members, which is limited, but something. But then by 1944, she, she realises this is not enough and they have to stop Hitler. Um, she begins to realise what that regime is doing. And so she actually became involved in her brother-in-law's plot to kill Hitler, the most famous assassination attempt, the um, 20th of July bomb plot. <clears throat> um, and she's actually at the heart of that. I mean, it's amazing. It's one of the most written about episodes of the war. And yet her name very rarely comes up in it. And I think most of the men's papers, you know, they're, they're in the military archives out in Germany. Um, and I did go out there and look in those, check all the archives out. Of course, found a lot on Hannah there, but very little on Melita. And I think her papers are basically, you know, they're all with the family. They were filed as domestic, including her 19, I held her 1944 handwritten diary in my hands. And it talks about the bomb plot, but it was just sent back to the family because she was a woman and nobody was really interested and they weren't looking at it. So I would definitely talk to Melissa, who is far more interesting than Hannah, who's a bit of a blunt tool, really. Um, I would, and I'll talk to Melissa about the plot, but I'd also really talk to her about how much she knew when about what the regime was doing. There, I want to say thank you so much for coming on board and chatting to us about these just astonishingly amazing women um it's inspired me and i'm sure alex has also been inspired absolutely alex. <laughs> I, I, do you know what i've just downloaded your book on kindle already while well, you've still been talking so i downloaded your application to mi5 but... yeah <laughs> no not that, not that much that, that rejected me, me many <clears throat> many years ago <laughs> <laughs> amazing thank you so much it's a pleasure thank you very much for having me on it's been great Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 